0: It's 1936. Concerned church members in Tacalo, Mexico, hold a third convention. 251 of them petition the first presidency for change. They want native priesthood leadership to have greater authority to run the church in Mexico. These tense times are examined next in Chapter 24, The Aim of the Church. This is Saints Volume Three, the
1: podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm James Perry, and I'm Shaylen Back. Joining us today is James Goldberg, a writer and historian. And we're also joined by Elisa Polido, a visiting scholar at Claremont Graduate University. Thank you both for being here, and welcome to the podcast.
0: We're happy to be here. It's so good to be back.
1: Well. Thank you for joining us. And Elisa, I wonder if you could get us started by telling us about your connection to the history of the church in Mexico.
2: Well, both of my parents were missionaries in Mexico in 1946 to 48, the time of the reunification of the Third Convention, which is what they spent their time working on as missionaries. It was directly after World War II. My father was a returning GI. And they had 22 marriages come out of their mission. (laughs) There were just so many soldiers returning and going on missions. So when I was at Claremont Graduate University as a Ph.D. student and I was looking for something to write about, I decided I had all these oral histories right at my fingertips. And I was able to interview my parents' missionary companions and other people that they knew. And they were all in their 90s, and every one of them has passed away since. So it was a unique opportunity to capture the voices of people who had been in Mexico at this very important moment in time.
1: And we look forward to finding out a little bit more about some of your insights as we go into the podcast. And James, I wonder if we could get started today you have worked on many different projects and you've been writing about different cultures and different groups. What are some of the lessons that you've learned from writing about global church history?
0: Well, Elisa mentioned how there's a real living family connection for her to this story. And I think that's an important thing to remember, whatever story you're telling, that, that it's someone's story, that this was their life. The documents were left as historians give us this little window into it that's that's part of a larger experience. So I think anytime we're talking about the history of the church somewhere, and especially when we're looking at these stories where we're dealing with complicated conflicts between people, it's just important to remember that there was love and investment and life experience tied up in this thing.
2: Well, as we jump into the chapter, we are introduced to Isaias Juarez, who is serving as a district president in Central Mexico. What more can you tell us about him and his connection to the church? Isaias Juarez had been the president in the San Pedro Martir branch, and as president of the Mexico district, later, his counselors were Abel Páez and Bernabe Para. So in 1926, There was a ruling that said that foreign clerics had to leave Mexico. So, at that point in time, it was difficult for President Ray L. Pratt to offer consistent leadership in the mission. So, he was leading from the United States by letter. And he wrote a letter to Juarez and asked him and his counselors to administrate the church in central Mexico in his absence. So, Juarez was really an anchor of stability. And under his leadership, The branches in Mexico survived, and some of them even thrived. So he was the district president for the first two conventions in the church, which were meetings that Mexicans held to discuss concerns they had about the church in Mexico Like, they didn't have enough literature translated into Spanish. They wanted young people to be able to go on missions. They needed more chapels. And they felt that there was a communication void between them and the general authorities in Salt Lake. And so they met twice in the first and second conventions. After the second convention, and and they were communicating with Salt Lake. They would send them letters about these meetings and after the second one, Melvin J. Ballard came down with Antoine Ivins and told them that this wasn't the way that things were to be run. And in 1931, the mission president was Antoine Ivins because Rael Pratt died and he replaced him. They came down and said, This isn't the order of things in the church. This isn't how things are supposed to be run. So when the third convention came about, Isaias Juarez was very conflicted. By that point in time, Ray L. Pratt's half-brother, Harold Pratt, was the mission president in Mexico. And Isaias Juarez felt conflicted because he was trying to support the leadership of the church, and at the same time, he understood the concerns of the Mexican members. And for the third one, they petitioned for a Mexican mission president and suggested a name, Abel Páez. So he didn't join the convention himself. And some of the members called him a turncoat for this, which I think bothered him greatly because after the third convention split from the church and Harold Pratt was still the president of the mission, he kind of went inactive for a while. But it was because he threw himself into organizing unions for peasant farm workers who hadn't really benefited from the revolution. He got exiled to Guatemala for this activity, but then later returned to organize this national campesino or peasant union and actually worked with the agrarian department of the Mexican government. So he was constantly traveling and he was out of the country for a while. But later, when the convention reunites, and you'll talk about this later, he was a member of the committee of Consejo y Bienestar, Council and Welfare, and helped with the reunification of the church and communications between the indigenous members and the leaders in Salt Lake City. I really believe that his activities in Guatemala and organizing these unions, he threw himself in them because he wanted to prove that he did have the interests of humble Mexicans at heart. And he was dedicated to the church as well. He lived in difficult times and did a lot of things for the church, supporting growth and survivorship of the church in Mexico at a time when there really wasn't much help for him.
1: For me, he's one of the heroes of this story because he has these concerns, frustrations, but yet he's able to stick with it. And thank you so much for for sharing those additional insights. And Alisa, you mentioned this briefly, and I wonder if we could maybe talk about it a bit more, but why was it that American missionaries were essentially expelled? Why was it that there was this issue with Americans serving in the church in Mexico?
2: So anti-clerical laws in Mexico were introduced into the Constitution of 1917. Anti-clerical laws in Mexico were designed to lessen the power of the Catholic Church in Mexico and to allow for a secular state separate from the church. At that point in time, the schools were through the Catholic Church And indigenous men had largely been excluded from the Catholic clergy for about 400 years. Most of them came from Spain or France. And then also the government at the time had been supported by wealthy aristocrats in Mexico. So even though there had been this war of independence in 1810, it hadn't really democratized Mexico. And this is why the Mexican Revolution was fought. So people wanted to return Mexico to the control of Mexicans right before the revolution took off during the tenure of Mexican President Porfirio Diaz. He had decided it was time to modernize and industrialize the nation, so they invited foreign industrialists in. They took away communal farmlands from peasants and gave them to large hacienda holders, which forced the peasants into debt peonage on haciendas. And so all of these laws were meant to get rid of foreigners, At the time of the revolution, they took back industries in Mexico. And at the time of the third convention, they finally had a president, Lazaro Cárdenas, who was willing to turn lands back over to peasants. So these laws were not specifically directed at Mormon missionaries or Americans. They were directed at all foreign clerics. And as it happened, a lot of the missionaries were From the United States, and many of the adult leaders in the mission and the mission president were from the United States as well. They had tried to send missionaries who were born in the Mormon colonies and had applied for Mexican citizenship as well, and mission presidents in this situation. But this is why the leaders were being expelled. And another reason why the Third Convention asked for a mission president of Mexican heritage so that they wouldn't be expelled from the nation. I could probably add that there were two centers of the church in Mexico then. One was up in the Mormon colonies and one was down in central Mexico. So the Mormon colonies had been established as a safe haven for polygamists, fleeing prosecution by the federal government. But during the revolution, most of these members had to go back to the US to escape the violence, which was really quite terrible. At the height of the violence of the revolution, life expectancy in Mexico was between 15 and 20 years of age. And it is estimated that between one and three million people perished in Mexico. The fact that the church survived is due to local indigenous leadership and a little bit miraculous, but as the violence in the revolution diminished, growth returned, missionaries were allowed back until the 1917 anti-clerical laws caused them to leave again. Most of the violence has died down by
0: 1920. And in the 20s, we've got some... Really lovely accounts of how the church in Mexico is starting to grow and flourish. I've read about the big youth conferences they would have, and everybody would come down to a different village and sleep on the pews in the chapel overnight, and then have games and dances. And so this is a church of, of, yeah, really tough members who have been through a lot, and then are excited to build up the church now that political conditions have stabilized and raise families and see a greater prosperity. But it is tough because in those days, so many things in a mission have to go through a mission president. And because of these restrictions, they have one mission president, we mentioned, Ivans, who really doesn't set foot in the country. He's busy with Spanish-speaking converts north of the U.S.-Mexico border. So people have relatives, maybe, who are in the north, who are having a very different experience than they are. And it's their very energy and eagerness to share the gospel and build up the church that is causing some of the discontent.
1: Well, thank you for those insights there. I wonder now, for some of us who are maybe trying to picture what these conventions look like, and here we are with the third of the conventions I wonder if you could try and help paint the scene for us and give us an insight into what was going on in these gatherings.
0: So we'd mentioned that as local leaders are trying to administer the church, various concerns are going to come up. And it's just very normal meetings where they're coming together and petitioning the first presidency um, about some of these questions. And I think there's a culture that they're drawing on of creating petitions with grievances sometimes that's not necessarily something we do in the church, but is familiar in many different cultures. The other thing I'll say about the third convention meeting that's significant is when they get to the point where the mission split and there was a mission just for the country of Mexico rather than one that bridged the border, a lot of people had hoped that that would be the time where they would finally have somebody who was a Mexican citizen, but also ethnically Mexican from Central Mexico. For a lot of people who did have indigenous ancestry, they really read the Book of Mormon as having a lot of promises for them, which I think is consistent with the Book of Mormon text and hope to see those promises realized. So there was All this excitement about now's the time, right, when indigenous people will be able to to grow this church and lead on our own. And they felt like they were ready. So there was a disappointment when you had Harold Pratt called as mission president. He came from the colonies in the north, had different ancestry. And Harold Pratt also often called missionaries to fulfill different administrative functions. So it was kind of displacing local leaders. And so before the third convention formal meeting, there's a lot of talk between Mexican leaders about what do we want to do about this? Should we do anything about this? And then some choose to meet. And like we mentioned, Isaias Suarez, for example, does not. And so that became a more divisive meeting that really separated the people who felt like we need to push for something right now and people who said we want to be patient a little bit on this.
2: Those were days in which they didn't have the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price in Spanish. They weren't translated and published until 1948. And the third convention is 1936. So I think they felt like they weren't getting enough doctrine. They weren't being taught like everyone else. And the other thing is too, that not only did the... Constitution of 1917, institute anti-clerical laws, but also there were rights in there granting Mexicans the right to petition, the right to assemble, the right to air their grievances. So this was a heady time of nationalism and Mexicans feeling democratic, and they believed that they were exercising their rights as Mexican citizens and were, quite frankly, confused by the response of the church. So in this chapter, we also read about Margarito Bautista, and we would love to know a little bit more about him, and then also what he went on to do after his excommunication. Okay, Margarito Bautista was baptized in 1901. He was 23 years old and lived in Atlautla. His parents were Nahuas. They spoke Nahuatl. He had been a religious seeker and had been considering becoming a Methodist minister, but decided not to. He joined the LDS church instead. The narratives of the Book of Mormon were very compelling to him. And even before his baptism, he traveled with Amonteni, proselytizing. Amonteni was the newly appointed mission president in Mexico. So he went on several little local missions after his baptism, and he was ordained a teacher everywhere he went. He's a transnational figure. So first he moves to the Mormon colonies where he teaches the children of colonists Spanish, but he's also proselytizing Mexicans there. And then one month before the revolution begins, he goes to Mesa, Arizona, and he's congregation building there, preaching to Mexicans. He moves to Salt Lake around 1914, and while he's up in Salt Lake, he's proselytizing to Mexicans there with other Spanish speakers in the area. They meet in Pioneer Park, and eventually, in the early 1920s, they make the first Spanish-speaking unit of the church in Utah. Margarito Bautista is made the branch president. It's first called the Temporary Lamanite Branch. Four months later, they changed the name to the local Mexican mission. But he's only there a year or so, and then he leaves to go on a genealogical mission to Mexico. So he went down to Mexico to teach. Mexicans and brought back large volumes of family history that was done in temples in Utah, a lot of it in Logan, I believe. So after his return to Salt Lake City, he had a falling out, several people did, in the Spanish speaking unit over not having a Mexican leader in the branch. I think the church saw it as a Spanish-speaking unit of the church, and Margarito and others saw it as a Mexican unit of the church. So they wanted a Mexican leader and a Mexican branch. At any rate, the fracas became so great that for about four decades, there wasn't Spanish-speaking leadership in the branch. And so Margarito disappears from the minutes of that branch. His children are still listed. His brother-in-law and sister, the Tsunigas, are still in the records of this branch. He appears on some letterhead for the Wandamir Ward Genealogical Society. So he's still going to church and he's still involved in genealogy, but he's no longer in this branch. And I think he feels like he's kind of lost voice for the Mexican people in terms of the gospel. So he takes on a new project and writes a 564-page tome melding Mexican history with the Book of Mormon. And when he finishes this huge work, and it has other things in it like um, Mormon doctrine, etc., But he never uses the word Mormon in the book. He never even says the words Book of Mormon. I think for him, it was like a large missionary tract. He was was going to gently ease his readership in Mexico into this spiritual history, which he said came from ancient animals. At any rate, he goes down to Mexico to get it published in 1935. And when he's down there, he gets involved in the leadership of planning and organizing the Third Convention. He isn't excommunicated for that activity until 1937. And after that, he continues to proselytize, looking for followers. He was really convinced that Mexicans, through obedience, could bring about the millennium. So he founds a utopian society in Mexico, in Osumba, which was near where he was born, back in these agrarian farmlands around Popocatépetl, this is the endeavor he spends the rest of his life at. He founds the colony in 1946 in this area, and his colony grew. At this time, he has a missionary force. He's printing missionary pamphlets, but he dedicates himself to his colony for the rest of his life. They practice the two most difficult of early Mormonism's practices, polygamy and the law of consecration.
0: It's yeah, so if you're in Mexico in the late 1930s, as a member of the church, you have those who stay loyal to the mission leadership and are inside the mainstream church. You have the third convention group that are led by Abel Payas, who's Bautista's nephew and a respected local leader. The third convention quickly ejects Bautista. So he's no longer a member of either the mainstream church or the third convention because he's trying to introduce these other practices back. And Pius tries to keep the third convention consistent with continuing church teachings, but independent of mission leadership. They just don't accept the mission leaders. So they're outside the church, but trying to stay close. So it's sort of those three groups you want to track in your mind as you're thinking about how this relationship goes. And Bautista's would be the smallest of the three by far.
2: There were actually several people who broke off from the third convention. I interviewed Ruth Torres at one point, who was one of my mother's missionary companions. And she said to me that the problem in the third convention was it was so factionalized. And there was a group led by Daniel Mejia and other groups that broke off. She said to me they just couldn't get along, but the main body of them remained under Abel Pius. Now, I will say that Margarito Bautista was interested in practicing polygamy, which was why he was expelled from the Third Convention. And We have to remember that he was converted to polygamy in the Mormon colonies and made many friends there, budding fundamentalists. And he is a complicated character, and these were absolutely very complicated times.
1: Well, thank you both for those insights. Well, let's talk for a moment about the, we'll call it the mainstream church, or the mission as it was at the time, that those members and leaders who had chosen to follow the prophet and to stay active in the church organization how did this third convention and all of the subsequent splits within the third convention, how did that impact the church in Mexico?
2: I think it's important to remember that only a third of the members left, so two-thirds stayed. And But it was still a large number when you consider that the church was small in Mexico. However, there were people I know from reading histories and diaries who absolutely held many of the same views that the convention is held, but chose not to join the movement and to follow the leadership in Salt Lake City. And then also, there was a lot of acrimony between the conventionists and the members of the church, but they continued to preach the restoration of the gospel as missionaries. They did a lot of missionary work, members of the third convention, and the Book of Mormon, they preached that, they sang the same hymns. And this story will have a happy ending. But when they do come back to the church, when it's reunified, they come back with more members than they left with.
0: We can say for sure that 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 shift is very important in church history. Um, And just from my own grandmother's experience, she was a little girl in Hidalgo State, right outside Mexico City at the time of the convention, which meant that the Third conventionists had been reunited with the main church by the time she served a mission. And at that time, the huge emphasis was on getting local leaders as quickly as possible, and it made a huge difference. And the church in the late 1940s grew very rapidly in Mexico, but it was strong, sustained growth because there was this focus on local leadership and being responsive to local concerns. So I think we as a church had to learn some lessons and we did learn the lessons. And that's part of what helped reunite people, right? Is that people in the convention and mission leaders, instead of looking back and trying to say who was right, who was wrong, who should have followed what procedure, they were able to look forward and say, what kind of church do we want? And can we share a vision of what the church in Mexico should look like with local leaders, with its own stakes, with more administrative independence, and everyone could agree that that's what they wanted.
2: Yes, I really appreciate your remarks there, James, because also in the years since the reunification of the convention, not only is there a dramatic rise in the number of converts, that's a successful pattern of organization, but there's also been this huge rise in the number of Latin American Temple presidents, mission presidents, area presidents, 70s, general authorities. What we can say, Latin Americans are blossoming like the rose in the church, in church leadership everywhere. Well, both of you touched on lessons that the church in general learned from this experience. And we would love to know, especially for the listeners of the podcast, the readers of the Saints volume, what are some lessons that can be pulled from this story for them? I think it's important for Latter-day Saints, we live in a global church, to read about the history of the church in other places and try to understand these people. We're told in the Doctrine and Covenants that we need to learn from the best books about what's in the earth and over the earth and above it. So I think we need to be naturally curious about the peoples of the world, try to learn from their cultural wealth try to understand their histories so that we can be more compassionate followers of Christ. I truly believe that. And I have a lot of faith in the literacy and the curiosity of members of the church that we will be successful in that endeavor. Finally, as James said, the convention teaches people everywhere and not just Latter-day Saints. There are schisms in many religions, and it's a rare thing to have a reunification, which you will talk about later. But right now in this nation, not just as Latter-day Saints, but in the nation where this will be published and, and maybe people all over the world will hear it. But there is a lot of acrimony in the world. It's a great time of division with racial, political and religious divides in all divisions, whether they're in the church or out of the church, that pride and acrimony and judgment divide whereas patience, mutual respect, and a willingness to listen to others breed harmony and they are lessons the whole world needs right now.
0: Amen.
2: (laughs) Thank you James, we are in agreement.
1: (laughs) Hopefully we all are, certainly I agree with what you shared there. Well thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast, it's been fantastic having you and really appreciate all of the great insights that you've given us today.
2: Thank you for the invitation. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Thanks so much. It was really nice to meet you.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.